In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammy and Sandy. Jennifer Burnham Grubbs is our guest this week on Money Tales. When Jennifer was a student at Princeton, all of her friends talked about how they were opening bank accounts. Jennifer decided she should have one too. She walked into a local bank. The process seemed straightforward until she faced a question she hadn't anticipated. The teller asked Jennifer how much money she was going to put into the account. Jennifer didn't have any. She left the bank with a crucial realization that there were aspects of the financial world that she didn't yet understand. As you'll hear, Jennifer's a quick study. Today, Jennifer is the founder and CEO of Quantum Insurance Services. Her company is an award-winning, innovative, client-focused financial well-being brokerage firm for health and wealth protection and growth. Jennifer is also co-founder, along with prior Money Tales guests, Arapia Rico of Women of Wealth, a nonprofit dedicated to helping women use money strategically, intelligently, and successfully. Here are three key money topics Jennifer hits on in this conversation. First, how when she graduated college, she transitioned from student life supported by scholarships to life in the working world. Second, why Jennifer decided to pivot careers early in her marriage in order to diversify the family's income. And third, how Jennifer defines abundance as simply having more than you need and how you can dial down what you need in order to create abundance. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now on to our conversation with Jennifer Burnham Grubbs. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cami Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Sandy, I wanted to share this with some really special friends that I grew up with this past weekend. Had a little mini reunion. Oh, fun. Yeah, it was so great. Among all the catching up, we had a very important money conversation. One of our friends has become an entrepreneur. She started a pop-up boutique called Olive Hill Outfitters in Napa Valley. She's curating clothes and selling them in a really fun environment. That's why the pop-up notion. We ended up all together and she's like, well, come on over, come check out the shop. So a lot of our time together was having fun, talking and shopping and just having this great experience. So comes time to check out and the entrepreneur says, oh, I probably didn't tell you there's a friends and family discount. Money Tales has taught me, why are you offering a friends and family discount? She said, well, we don't want to make money off our friends. I know. So what a great opportunity to say, well, wait a second. And that was our guest, by the way. That was not my response. (laughs) For those listening in, I just wanted to point that out. 
So <laughs> it gave us an opportunity to talk about money. And this is not her intention to make it a non-for-profit. She wants to be financially successful with it. And how do you do that? You start with friends and family. And as I had to point out, you could almost charge a premium because this experience was so amazing. She's created a really beautiful room and you're spending some time together and a beautiful surrounding. And so I believe we convinced her to take away the friends and family discount. Although we all bought one item that was the same. We laughed about it. We're like, oh, it'll be our little uniform and reminder. She said, all right, that one thing I have to give you a little off. So that was a nice treat. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I'm curious, how was her response to your question? Very open, just the fact that they've thought about it. They were intentional. She has a business partner and she said, we didn't feel comfortable making money off of friends. Mm. Is her business partner female? I'm just curious. Jennifer, our guest, yes, she is female. That's right. And I do think that is a female orientation. And so those of us who are friends can challenge that, make sure maybe it's a part of your marketing strategy and for the right reasons you want to do something. But I wanted to have that conversation to think through, is it part of the strategy or part of the guilt? And it sounds like you guys had a good conversation and that maybe she and her partner will change their approach going forward. I hope so, because uh, I too want them to be successful because the clothes were fantastic. I want to keep shopping there. I want to know the site. Olive Hill Outfitters dot store. Check it out. You described it in such a way that I am extremely piqued. Who doesn't love shopping in a fun and curated environment? That's right. (laughs) Oh, well, what a perfect opportunity. I get to welcome our guest today, Jennifer Burnham Grubbs. It's fantastic to have you on the Money Tales podcast. Hello. It is fantastic to be hearing your mellifluous voices and also this engaging story. And I think it's so intriguing that that's what you tuned into. I love that you were doing that as you were also there having a great time with your friend. Thanks for that. And if we all do more of it, it'll just keep talking money. Jennifer, would you introduce yourself and provide a couple pivotal moments that really impacted you influencing who you are today? My name is Jennifer Burnham Grubbs. I'm the owner and CEO of Quantum Insurance Services. We're a commissions agnostic insurance consulting firm based out of Los Angeles, California. We service clients all across the US, but our home base is LA. And I'm also co-founder of Women of Wealth, which is a nonprofit dedicated to helping women move from financial literacy into fluency, into mastery with what we like to call our abundance IQ, because there's a lot that goes into it. You talked about guilt, and then there's also brass tax financial conversations. So it's that inner and outer abundance IQ and financial IQ, which is a passion project of mine that's sort of taken off. So now I'm running two different organizations at full speed. Never a dull moment. Let's hear your backstory. When you were growing up, when did money start having meaning to you? Oh my gosh, early, early on. I didn't come from money. I grew up in a small town in Maryland. I had had a little bit of an international background before that. My mother was an immigrant and we moved into a small town in Maryland. I thought I was wealthy. I thought I was upper middle class until I went to Princeton and I learned I was not (laughs) actually wealthy at all. What was that like for you? It was really interesting unpeeling of layers of insight into the social condition. 
because my mom had been a master of providing for me. She and my dad got divorced when I was about 14. She was a single mom, a hairdresser, immigrant, and I never felt black. She would come home with a pair of earrings I never even asked for or a sweater. And she'd be like, I got this for you. And I now know she bought them on sale real cheap, but I had no idea. And so she was constantly giving to me more than I wanted. So all I knew was abundance. At the same time, I think I knew at a deep, deep level early on that I needed money because it wasn't going to just like come to me. So I think the very first thing I did when I was 11 was I did a consignment yard sale because I didn't have anything to sell and I couldn't work yet. But I was like, other people probably have stuff to sell. So I made my mom take me to the back then you had to get Xerox copies. And I printed up a bunch of flyers saying, hey, I'll sell your stuff for you on this such and such date. And I'll take 30%. You keep 70%. And please call my mom <laughs> you know, if you want to participate. Well, lo and behold, it was sort of a hit. I made $144, which was for me a huge amount of money because what I did not know about yard sales is people are nuts with the yard sales. It was supposed to start at nine in the morning. There were people there at 645 and they were lowballing me. They'd be like, how much for the horse head bookend? I'd be like 25 cents. They'd be like, will you take five cents? I'd be like, no. And then later I was like, okay, fine. Like I see that this is going to be like a much slower profit margin than you know I had anticipated. But it didn't matter because it was proof of concept that I could make money from sort of nothing with a little bit of providing a value proposition to somebody that was meaningful to them and not asking to take back more than I was giving them in exchange. So it was great. And yeah, going to Princeton, it was really interesting to see that there were people who like, we had a meal plan, but they would still go out to dinner at a Chinese restaurant on a Friday night. And I was like, how are you doing that? And why are you doing that? We already have food. The best story I can say is all my roommates were getting bank accounts at the bank on Nassau Street. And so I was like, oh, I guess this is a thing that you do. You go and get a bank account. So I went to the bank at Nassau Street in Princeton. And I was like, hi, I'm here to open a bank account. They're like, okay, you know, fill out the form and everything. And then they're like, how much are you going to put in it? And I was like, well, what do you mean? And they're like, you have to put money in the bank account. I was like, oh, no, I don't have any money. I'm interested in money, but I don't have any to put in right now. I might have some later. <laughs> they were like, come back when you have some money. <laughs> Jennifer, what was that experience like for you at the time? Because as a naive college student who's curious about the world, has some experience as a money magician, making something out of nothing, but not having any money at the moment, how did you react to their reaction? Honestly? I was a little offended. I was like, you know, I'm a valuable person. I think I should be able to have a bank account. I'm pretty sure I'll have money at some point. I didn't actually get offended, but I think I partly let it roll right off me. And I partly started to have an inkling that there were things I didn't really understand about the world of money. I was like, huh, you know, or like I started noticing that my mom had given me like a little $25 calling card to go call her from a payphone if I needed to say hello. But some of my richer friends who were from, you know, New Jersey or wherever, they were just using the phone from the dorm, which charged like some astounding rate per minute, you know, and I was like, I don't think I have the same amount of money as these people. <laughs> like, 
And did that make you feel differently? The way you're portraying the story now that you're very matter of fact about it and definitely learning that there's a difference, but not really being plus by it. Yeah, I really wasn't plus. I felt very proud of myself for getting into college. I'd gotten full scholarships. I felt kind of like a self-made woman, even though I was 18, you know, I like made it all happen. I got out of this like crazy small town. I got scholarship money. It was all paid for. Like everything was great. I had extra scholarship money after college left over because I made a lot of scholarship money. I worked every Friday night while other people went and drank beers in high school or whatever on applying for scholarships. And I won a lot of amazing scholarships. I felt very abundant, actually. And I was very naive as well. And so it really wasn't until graduation day when I was graduating from college and I suddenly realized that this incredible environment was all leaving me and that everything that was like kind of paid for or provided was all gone. And I was going to have to start from scratch. And it really kind of blindsided me because I really didn't see it coming. So I don't think I really started to worry or care until graduation. What'd you do, Jennifer? I used some extra scholarship money and I moved to London where I lived off of a dollar or two a day. I learned how to finagle the bus system because I couldn't afford a full bus pass. But if I put my hand over the expiration date and I kind of played kind of cool, I could make it stretch further and it worked out well. Then I moved to New York and then I started temp jobs and I got promoted very quickly at these temp jobs. And I started noticing that weirdly people trusted me with money. (laughs) It was so weird. I got hired at this firm in New York as a temp. Three days later, the girl who was training me quit. They're like, we're going to make you the manager. And a day later, they were giving me checks for like $100,000 to go cash at the Citibank down the street and giving me their social security numbers and everything so I could like write it on the back of the check and then deposit it and then go bring the cash back. I was like up late at night. I was like, these people are giving me hundreds of thousands of dollars and they literally just met me. Like they don't know anything about me. I know that I'm very trustworthy with this, but this is a little crazy that they're trusting me so quickly. A couple of days later, I think they realized the same thing. It was a law firm, but I think it was like friends of the mafia, friends of friends of the mafia. So a couple of days later, one of them said, you know, if you ever F me, I've got friends. And I was like, no, don't, it'll be fine. I will not be effing anybody. Well, that's quite a money conversation right there. (laughs) Very direct. (laughs) So it was all just great. Starting to learn how things roll, I think, you know, it's really great. So Jennifer, what brought you to London and then to New York? Because it sounds like when you graduated school, you realized you were on your own financially, but it doesn't sound like you were focused necessarily on trying to make as much money as you could at that point. No, definitely not. I was very committed to being an artist. I actually really wanted to be a director. I'd always been a really creative kid and I had had so much of a feeling of abundance in my life. And at college, so much was abundant that I was like, this is going to be great. I'm good at it. I can totally do this. But what happened was I realized out in the real world that you really need a patron or a trust fund, or you're going to have to have a day job. And that is going to then compete with the ability to put time into the other work, which was a quandary because all my other friends who did have trust funds, they were graduating and then their apartment in New York was paid for them. And they were just kind of working on their thing. And I was like temping at law firms 
as my day job and then working off Broadway in the rest of the time. And it really became difficult and little by little. And I had a lot of energy. So at first I was like, this is totally fine. I can just do all of this. But it got harder and harder when I moved to LA because I had a manager at the time who was like, look, you should start to work in TV and film. And I was like, that sounds like a good idea because I think there's more money in that than there is in theater. I should do that probably sooner rather than later. So I moved out to LA. And then I met my husband and he was also a creative. And it was good at first because we were like, hey, we both have these passions and we're going to have such synergy in our careers. But then once it got serious and we were getting married, I was like, wait, we can't both be creative. This will be a disaster. Because <laughs> you already were thinking about almost diversification. Is that where your brain was going and the risks? And money. I was like, we want to have a family. Families need stability. And the arts are wonderful, but really not predictable and consistent for most. And I really think I was, I was, I was running the numbers. I was like, wait, the odds of us having consistent sources of income are very low. And that could turn out to be a bigger problem if we ever have dependence. <laughs> That's what I was thinking, which is very true. So what did you do next? I did a hard pivot and I went to a boutique in Beverly Hills that was looking for some sort of low-level assistant. And I'd been working since you know I was like 12 or 13 and had had a million different kinds of jobs. And so I got hired on the spot. He didn't even ask where I went to school or anything. I see a trend. People just trust yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. And then the next day, he's like, oh, where'd you go to school? I was like, Princeton. And he was like, oh, my cousin went there. And it was a really small world thing because it turned out his cousin was one of my best friends in college and a trust fund kid, a big, big trust fund kid. And I didn't even know that at the time, but I learned it later that this friend of mine who was my peer... I was friends sort of with some of like the richest people in college and I didn't know it because what I think we all had in common was this ability to focus on things other than money. I think if you're so wealthy, you can just focus on everything else that's interesting besides just money. And if you also have no money, you can do the same thing. And so we really all saw very much eye to eye about so much. Say more about that, Jennifer. Did you talk with your friends? That's such an interesting point. It's all about the ability to focus on things that didn't have to do with money, but life costs money. So were you talking about it with your friends at that time? Never, never, ever, ever. It literally never, ever came up. Just thinking back, why do you think that's the case? Because they all had so much of it. It wasn't even a question. I had none of it, but had learned to never need it. I see. <laughs> So literally, my needs were extremely low. And it didn't matter what theirs were because their needs were met financially. And so we were all just concentrating and enjoying and like living life. And again, it only became clear after graduation when they were like, I'm moving to New York. I'm going to go live with XYZ. And I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do because whatever I do, I'm going to need to pay for it. And I hadn't even thought about it actually, which sounds so dumb. But I feel very blessed to have been that naive in that way. And the word you keep using is abundance, right? And so I really appreciate how you're bringing to life the ability to see abundance in different situations. And abundance doesn't necessarily mean a huge amount of dollars in your pocket. Oh my gosh, abundance. I love that you said that because I have a theory, Sandy. Abundance is simply 
having more than you need. And there's a really interesting metric in that you can dial down what you need and then end up with abundance. If you're making $2 a day and you find a way to live off of $1.95, you made a profit. And if you have $100,000 and spend $110,000, you're at a deficit, right? And you get to be in charge of what you spend to some extent. Once you have kids, it's very different, I think, but to some extent, right? And also, if you get really good with budgeting and other things when you are growing up and you have kids, there's still things you can do to move the needle. That's part of why I created WOW, because I am fascinated with all the different ways you move the levers to create abundance. So tell us more about those levers, because... I'm curious to know if mindset is one of them. Interestingly, I 10,000% believe it is. I spend a lot of time more and more as a grown up on my meditation and my mindset for sure. Because I think the other thing I've really come to see is how generational, let's say trauma, financial trauma, and even other trauma really informs how we behave in the universe deeply in ways we don't even see and really subconsciously. The only way to change that is to get extremely conscious in this super loving way of whatever is your programming in order to then be able to detach from it and kind of move the needle. And I think what my mom was a master of when I was very young was somehow creating this blissful ignorance of any kind of trauma around money in any shape or form, no matter what else was going on behind the scenes. Then it wasn't till later when I was in the real world that I learned that my approaches with money came from scarcity, from definite and real scarcity. And I really learned it because the man I married is a very different person. He did not at all come from scarcity. And he has a very different approach. And we've actually both had to meet in the middle a little bit about that. Jennifer, will you share more about that? It's really interesting. It's common. Couples come into relationships, were raised by different families, have different experiences. How did you two approach and how do you approach reconciling those differences and meeting in the middle? Oh, it is a complete and total, honest, ongoing growth pattern for the two of us. And I feel very grateful. My husband is a person who would give himself the benefit of the doubt a little bit more and get more as a result of it. I don't know how to explain this, but like we were in France on our honeymoon and I speak fluent French and I was very conscientious, you know, please, all in French, could I please have a croissant? Thank you so much. Have a great day. And they hated me because I was like, this is annoying American. And he'd be like, un croissant. And he'd just put his hand up. I think we're like, hop, dude. He'd be like, oui, monsieur. Do you want another? Like, you know, like, not really, but... It was the mindset of you give me as opposed to I give you. And I'm not trying to say he's this awful narcissist at all, but for someone like me who had come from such an inverse point of view, it was incredibly excellent to have exposure to that, even being a possibility in the universe. Does that make sense? It does. I think you're talking about a transaction to some degree. Like if you're looking at it from I owe them, then it's really hard, lots of pleases and thank yous. I get the point. You can still say please and thank you. But when we know there's a compensation and I'm paying you for this and I expect whatever, great service, great food, great clothes, whatever. Exactly. That I am worthy. That I am worthy. 
Mm-hmm. And I also deserve to have and receive is like a piece of really filling the hole if people have come from the scarcity. And I see it in so many people. Certainly, I've obviously like been conscious of myself a bit. But now in the work I do, I do a lot of work with people in money. I was an anthropology major in college, so I simply cannot help but observe the patterns between systems of meaning and patterns that seem to just show up in terms of where someone may have come from and how they are approaching opportunities that come their way. I mean, it's it's just inevitable that it will end up impacting your experience with money. Yeah, so I'm taking what you're saying, and I have your background in the art in mind as well, right? And being a director. And what I'm hearing you say is we all can serve ourselves better if we are the main character in our own stories. Yeah, I mean... Someone just said to me at a party on Saturday for a very good friend of mine, something I had never thought of before. And she said, other than the relationship with ourselves, our relationship with money is the longest relationship we will have. I was like, whoa, (laughs) that's so true and creepy almost. And we say money, but we can say resources that we need as well. Because really money is a conduit to getting resources that we need in a way. Though it's also its own entity. But you know what I'm saying? Like our relationship with getting food, getting milk as a baby, and then getting what else we need, or then growing the money and providing for others. That's a very important piece of executive function that we will develop over time to some extent, no matter what. I'm glad you're bringing it up because we'll oftentimes ask guests to tell us about their relationship with money. And it truly is a relationship. There's relating going on. And it is funny. I don't think, I can't think of, other aspects of life where we're relating with an inanimate concept. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Jennifer, so you were at this boutique, but we know through your introduction that you're the founder and CEO of an insurance company called Quantum. Yeah. Take us there. How did that all come about? Okay, sure. Yeah. So I got there and got hired and I was just an assistant making $17 an hour. At the insurance firm? Yeah. Yeah. And he was so sweet. He was very sweet in that he would explain anything he was doing and how come or what I was doing and why. And that was great for someone like me because I'm kind of a sponge and then giving me context allowed me to really bring some of my other skills to bear. And so basically I was able to triple his business in three years because I was like, oh, we're just helping people. And then we have to understand these products and then we have to fit them to their needs if we want to help them save money, which he never told me your job is to help people save money. I added that. I thought that was the job was to help people save money. Because again, that was, you know, for me, that's a primary directive growing up. And that was what tripled his business because everybody would come and he just started giving me more and more to do because I was eminently capable. And then he really just started putting his feet up on the desk, watching me write all of his emails for him, answer the phone, handle every client. And I was always solving for well, okay, tell me the prescriptions you take and what doctors, well, did you know we could actually save you money if we move you from a gold plan down to a bronze plan and it'll work out just right though because you hardly ever use it, blah, blah, blah. And I just saved them $2,100 a year or whatever. And they were absolutely thrilled because it was going to be just as much coverage as they needed, but now they were paying less. And so it started that we were getting business like fire because everybody was referring people. And in three years, I'd done more for him than he had done in 30 years because of my primary directive being helping people save money to get better value. It really wasn't just cheap. It was better value. 
And I didn't even know it till a rep came in and was like, Marty, what are you doing? Right. Your business is through the roof. Like, holy cow. And I was like, then I perked up. I was like, wait, I'm what he's doing. Right. That's me. Uh-huh. $17 an hour, but look what I'm producing. This is really a superpower, I guess, or something. He was like, you know, Jennifer, you're really good at this. You should probably get your license and stuff. So I was like, okay, I guess so. I thought I might go to business school or something. And I kept doing, you know, what I was doing for him. But what was really interesting was, again, in a little bit of naivete, I was still doing the same thing, saving everybody money and doing better value. But one time I went to a meeting for him and it was an employee benefits group. It was a group insurance, not just individual. And the owner of the company was on this really expensive plan. And I came back and I said, look, good news. They're going to renew. But I moved her down to a gold plan from platinum because all her doctors worked out and it saved $3,600 on the premium. So she's really, really happy. And he was kind of like, huh. And I was like, what did I do wrong? I didn't ask him. I was like, he doesn't seem pleased with me. And I would think he would be pleased with me. And I finally figured it out, connected the dots a few other times that in most agents' minds, the goal is to have a higher premium because you make more commission. So once it's that big of a savings on something that he could have just auto-renewed and he wouldn't have had to give up the commission, he was not pleased with me. You're costing him some money instead of bringing more in. In the short run. But the best thing about that was that did not sit okay with me at all. I did not like that. That opened my eyes to you. Wait a, holy, what? All these guys with their like father figure kind of an attitude that we trust them to be on our side. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they're really there for themselves and they would use their advice or expertise for their own benefit instead of the person that they're helping that really sat wrongly with me. So I kind of started to think, wait, and everybody else at the office was very much commissions driven because my boss was nice. So I sort of thought like not everybody was like that. But when the nicest guy at the office was that way also, I just thought this industry is pretty much saturated with a problem. And I don't like that problem. And so I think I will change that. I will fix that problem. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So I launched Quantum as my own consulting firm, Commissions Agnostic. I'm curious, what does Commissions Agnostic mean? Commissions exist in my business. There's no way to be an independent producer and not be paid by the carrier a commission. Actually, it's a beautiful thing about it because it means anyone getting advice from us doesn't have to pay for all the extra work I do, quantifying and qualifying every single product in the market to evaluate what's best value and then tailoring their solutions and all that. They don't have to pay a dime for anything. I'll get paid by the carrier. When we say agnostic, what we mean is we don't even look at what the compensation is on the back end from any product. We literally like work blind, just looking at the value of the product. And then we get paid later, whatever we got paid. We had the pleasure of speaking with Adapia Tarico on the Money Tales podcast. You two are co-founders of Women of Wealth. Tell us from your perspective, why did you start? You didn't need to start another business, another time-consuming investment into an activity. Tell us what drove you and what you're interested in doing with it. Adapia might have said this on the podcast too, but it was an experiment gone very right. So it definitely was not the intention to start a whole other business. It was not. It was a friend came to a coffee shop that I was getting coffee at in 2019, maybe. 
And she was an entrepreneur and she was like really defeated looking. I was like, Hey Val, how you doing? She's like, I just went to this awful women's business conference downtown. It was a total time suck. People just wandering around aimlessly. Nobody talked about anything. At that moment, this rainbow prism sort of shone through the door on the ground. And I just saw this rainbow. I was like, we need to do this. We need to just get together the 12 or 20 best female entrepreneurs I know as clients or friends. And we just need to all sit together and talk brass tacks about money because we'll get so much farther faster than wandering around aimlessly in a conference room or a conference hall. I was like, Val, would you be up for that? She's like, yeah, yeah, we could get so-and-so and blah, blah, blah. And then so-and-so introduced me to Adapia, who somehow was looped into this. I didn't know her from Adam. We were just like instantly kind of kismet, like-minded people, even though now that you've probably met me and you've met her, we're very different in certain ways. We also were uniquely similar because she was the only other person I'd really met until then who was deeply spiritual, interesting, and creative. That's what I found her to be and hardcore financial savvy and background, which usually at that time and less and less so now, they were at odds with one another. Cammie and I are both big fans of what you and Adapia are doing with WOW. And I'm curious, Jennifer, with the experience you've had with the women you're working with there, what's one thing that you want to make sure our listeners take away from this conversation? Please join our community. So we have a tier of membership called Supporting Member that you can join just by going to our website. It's $500 or less, and we have different tiers. But it allows you to just get into the wow conversations because what we do is we have events, we have newsletters, we have curated specialists who help you move your financial and abundance IQ. Jennifer, tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? In my personal life, my next conversation will be either with my kids or my husband because my kids are always asking for something or wanting something. And I try to kind of teach them to take stewardship of their own money in certain ways. So it's like, you know, hey, can I please go to Starbucks? It might be, okay, yeah, today, sure. Or, you know what? No, because we can go home and we can make one and it'll save us time as well, which is a valuable resource. I like to have conversations like that all the time with my kids because we create the ability to have abundance as a family and also people who are also committed to stewarding wealth for the power of good. So growing money and being able to make it more so it's easier to share money. And I think that's something I'm very passionate about. You know, bringing to life the different resources that are important and us to think about what they are and that you talked about time. It's not just money. So thanks for reminding us of that important notion that it, you've got to think about how do you spend these important resources. Jennifer, where should our listeners find you? You can find me at quantuminsuranceservices.com. You can also find me at womenofwealth.com, which is really not just me. It's me, Adapia, Dana, our executive director, and the incredible women in the WOW Mastermind who help cultivate and curate our financial IQ, and then also the rest of us in this movement. And that's www.womenofwealth, W-O-M-X-N of wealth.com. Jennifer, thanks for that. And thank you for sharing so much and inspiring us through your stories. It's been a fantastic conversation. Ladies, thank you for being attuned to this kind of conversation. Thank you for the incredible work you're doing. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. 
Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time. Thank you.